Are we on? Good afternoon and welcome to the San Francisco Board of Supervisors meeting for today, Tuesday, November 28th, 2023. Madam Clerk, could you please call the roll? Thank you, Mr. President. Supervisor Chan. Chan present. Supervisor Dorsey. Dorsey present. Supervisor Ringardio. Ringardio present. Supervisor Mandelman. Present. Mandelman present. Supervisor Melgar. Melgar present. Supervisor Peskin. Present. Peskin present. Supervisor Preston. Preston present. Supervisor Ronan. Ronan present. Supervisor Safai. Safai present. Supervisor Stephanie. Stephanie present. And Supervisor Walton. Walton present. Mr. President, all members are present. Thank you, Madam Clerk. The San Francisco Board of Supervisors acknowledges we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatusha Ohlone, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatusha Ohlone have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatushaloni community and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. Colleagues, please join me in the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic. Madam Clerk, do we have any communications? Yes, briefly, Mr. President. The board welcomes all persons interested in this meeting to attend in person here in the Legislative Chamber, room 250, second floor in City Hall. This meeting is airing live on SFGOV-TV's channel 26, or you may view the live stream at www.sfgovtv.org. As an alternative to being present, you may submit your public comment in writing by email to bos at sfgov.org or send your written comments via U.S. Postal Service to the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, the number one, Dr. Carlton B. Goodlett Place, City Hall, room 244, in San Francisco, California, 94102. If you need to request a reasonable accommodation under the Americans with Disability uh, Act, or you need to request language assistance. You need to contact the clerk's office at least 48 business hours in advance of the meeting by calling 415-554-5184. Our office will make every effort to accommodate all requests. Uh, thank you, Mr. President. That concludes my communication. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Colleagues, do we have a motion to approve the minutes of October 17th and October 24th, 2023? Motion made by Supervisor Walton, seconded by Supervisor Mandelman. On that motion made and seconded, Madam Clerk, a roll call, please. On the minutes, Supervisor Dorsey. Aye. Dorsey, aye. Supervisor Engardio. Aye. Engardio, aye. Supervisor Mandelman. Aye. Mandelman, aye. Supervisor Melgar. Aye. Melgar, aye. Supervisor Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Supervisor Preston. Preston, aye. Supervisor Ronan. Ronan, aye. Supervisor Safai. Safai, aye. Supervisor Stephanie. Aye. Stephanie, aye. Supervisor Walton. Walton, aye. And Supervisor Chan. Chan, aye. There are 11 ayes. The motion is approved. Madam Clerk, could you please call the consent agenda?
Items 1 through 17 are on consent and considered to be routine. If a member objects, an item may be removed and considered separately. Seeing no names on the roster, we will take that same house, same call. Those ordinances are finally passed, passed on first reading and resolutions adopted. Next item, please. Item 18, this is the third draft of a charter amendment to amend the charter of the city and county of San Francisco to define full duty sworn officers for purposes of establishing minimum staffing levels for sworn officers of the police department. Supervisor Safai, insofar as you are the sponsor of this charter amendment, the one late charter amendment to be considered today, I will call on you first. Thank you, uh, President Preskin. Uh, thank you, colleagues. Uh, there's been a lot of consternation around this measure, not exactly clear why. Um, there has been some misinformation promoted about this measure. And to be honest with you, I didn't think I would be standing here today as the sponsor of this measure. Um, this measure has evolved in a way uh, that I think is healthy in terms of what debate we need to have in San Francisco. But I, I want to go back to some of the things I said in committee. Um, having served on the budget committee for the past three years, first under uh, Chair Haney, then Chair Ronan, and now uh, Chair Chan, um, this is and will be the most difficult budget that I've faced in seven years on the Board of Supervisors. We are approaching, at least right now, they say it's a half a billion dollar deficit. Um, they anticipate it growing to seven or eight hundred million dollars. And last year, we had people come into our chamber talking about food security, programs being cut. We had children, people carrying babies, child care providers talking about the threat of their programs being cut. Uh, we had senior programs, after-school programs. We had many different vital and core services in our city that were on the chopping block. And that was with a quarter of a billion dollar budget deficit. We are now facing over a half a billion dollar budget deficit. And that is a fact, and it is continuing to grow. So when this charter amendment was proposed, um, the conversation revolved around how we would, one, increase the minimum number of officers that have declined over the last five years, and now how are we going to creatively recruit and get more people back in, potentially through a recruitment fund? But let me say this, and, and again, serving on the budget committee serves us well in this conversation. We tomorrow, at the budget committee, will hear a request from the Department of Public Health to take $39.5 million from funded unfilled positions and convert that into overtime. Those positions are predominantly nurses and nurses assistants that have not been hired or filled in the city and county of San Francisco. So when you go to Laguna Honda and when you go to the emergency room at SF General, we are down emergency room nurses. When you call 911 in this city right now, we are only meeting the required response time 70% of the time, 71% of the time to be exact, because we are down 30 to 40 911 call operators. 
We are down sheriffs. We are down paramedics. We are down mental health technicians. We are down firefighters. And yes, we are down police officers. So if we are going to have a conversation about public safety in this city, we need to talk about all aspects of public safety that include all of the people that are on the front lines in this position. So I am not prepared to get into a conversation of pitting Peter against Paul or taking money from one area of our government and shifting it over to the other without a, without a true funding source. And that is the responsibility of this body to be thoughtful, to be responsible, and to think about all aspects of government. I understand over the last couple of years, people are very concerned about public safety, and they should be. But it needs to be approached in a healthy way and a thoughtful way. So we made an amendment. That amendment said from the original charter that there needs to be an identified source of funding. And that includes going and modifying an existing tax and looking for a way to pay for this in a thoughtful way. But I think when we do that, and that would be a second step, it's not included in this proposal, that's when we should have a real conversation about all aspects of public safety in when we're approaching uh, a full uh, conversation. So I want to thank uh, all of the individuals that have been involved in this conversation. I even want to thank Supervisor Dorsey for moving the conversation forward. Um, but I will say the idea that when things are amended, um, that is a normal process in the legislative process. That is a normal part of what we do in this body. Um, and that has happened time and time again. And so I think the end result that we have here is one that is doing two things. It's changing the conversation around minimum police staffing, which I think is a good thing. And then secondarily, it's saying we need to be fiscally responsible. We need to identify a source of funding, and let's do that in a thoughtful way. So colleagues, I ask for your support on this today. Um, I think that there's a lot more room for conversation. I hope um, Supervisor Dorsey and I can come together and continue to work on this um, as we have on other things in this body. And I think that all of us will be better served by the end result. Thank you, Mr. President. Thank you, Supervisor Seth, i.e. Supervisor Engardio. Thank you. I want to explain why I'll, I will be voting no on this measure. I have been a strong advocate for funding and hiring more police officers. We face a police staffing crisis and we're short hundreds of officers for a city our size. So I need to explain why I'm voting no on a measure that on its face looks like a measure to fund and hire more police officers. I'm voting no because this measure does nothing concrete to fund and hire police. It's merely aspirational. It does not set aside funds in the budget. It only suggests reallocating money from some current taxes that, have, that are volatile and have inconsistent income. This measure is merely aspirational because it is not a new dedicated tax. It refers to the possibility of using an unnamed tax in the future to pay for more police. And that raises some legal concerns for me. Taxes that pay for specific things require a two-thirds majority. Simple majority general taxes are easier to pass, but can the next one pay for something specific like police? Our city has been sued in the past over these very questions. In short, this measure is messy, and it doesn't do anything to immediately fund and hire police. We need to scrap this measure, start over, take the politics out of it, and work together to give San Francisco residents what they're begging for, better public safety. 
Better public safety starts with funding and hiring more police officers. It also includes more sheriff's deputies and first responders like paramedics and 911 operators. Let's talk about 911 operators. They are woefully underpaid and stressed to the max. They are leaving in droves. We can have all the police officers in the world, but what's the point if we don't have essential workers answering the phone when residents have an emergency? This measure is messy because it started as one thing, a dedicated budget set aside for police funding. Then it became another thing, which doesn't dedicate any definitive funding. A lot of politics happened, and this measure has become the political football for the upcoming election year, which promises to be one of the most consequential and contentious in recent memory. Some politicians will win, and some will lose as a result. But for the residents of San Francisco, it's all a loss. We can't play politics with public safety. That's why we need to scrap this measure and start over. Include 911 operators along with police officers and other first responders to create a comprehensive public safety budget set aside for the November ballot. There are basic functions of local government like filling potholes and cleaning the streets that residents expect City Hall to cover with existing revenue. A fully staffed police department and 911 call center is as basic as it gets. Without public safety, nothing else matters. Let's put the politics aside and do the work our constituents are demanding. Supervisor Ronan. Thank you. Um, I have to say I'm a little confused now, um, mostly by the sponsor's speech. So I have a couple of questions, maybe for the city attorney or for the controller or for the author. Um, as I read this measure, it, it, would, it would appear that any future revenue measure that, would, that we would put on the ballot that would pass, that it would first have to go to fund a minimum amount of police before the, the revenue could be used for anything else. Is, is that, am I reading this correctly? Deputy City Attorney Ann Pearson. So the measure includes this term, the full funding date. And that is a date when certain parts of the Charter Amendment would become operative. And the full funding date is defined as the date when the controller certifies that uh, the voters have passed a tax measure that will either dedicate funding for this purpose or will increase funding sufficient to cover the costs of this. And when that date happens, the funding requirements of this charter amendment will go into effect. So when that date happens, uh, the city would be required to appropriate funds to, uh, consistent with this and deposit money into the fund. So, so in plain language, because that's how I read it as well, mm -hmm. what that means is that any new revenue measure that goes on the ballot will first have to be used to fund minimum staffing for police before it could be fund anything else? I don't think that's exactly right. There could be a revenue measure that is a specific tax that's earmarked for something else. For a specific tax, and but that for a would general for that. tax. If there's a general tax that doesn't raise sufficient revenue to, trigger, to, to cover these costs, that would not trigger it. But if there is a general tax that, in the controller's estimation, generates enough revenue to cover the costs of this ballot measure, um, it would trigger these requirements. And 
so if there's another pandemic, we wouldn't be able to raise general revenue to cover health costs or housing or healthcare or anything else. If it was enough of a general tax to cover the minimum staffing, that this is the this is the worst written piece of legislation I think I've seen in my 15 years on this board. On this board, that's unbelievable. So we are tying our hands in the future, which means that unless we specifically want to raise revenue to hire police, why even try? No matter what's happening, no matter if there's a pandemic, no matter if the homeless crisis gets worse no matter if there is a staffing crisis in any other profession, and, and both of my colleagues just named you know, about a dozen where we have uh, minimum staffing, and I have to agree with Supervisor Engardio, this is a mess of a piece of legislation because it started as something completely different, which by the way, I would have been against as well, but it started as something completely different and has meshed into not nothing, but something that ties our hands and could prohibit us from achieving true public safety in the future. I, 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 you gave a speech, Supervisor Safai, all about the fact that public safety requires many things. It does require police, but it also requires mental health counselors and housing for the homeless and drug treatment programs and economic development programs. All of these things together is what makes public safety. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, colleagues, but didn't just three years ago President Norman Yee put a measure on the ballot so we didn't put arbitrary numbers in the charter to staff a certain department at any level? Like, we just did that. It, was, it passed, it passed uh, with incredible support from the public because it doesn't make sense to put random numbers that represent a specific moment in time in our city constitution. That's why we elect leaders to make judgment calls about how to use limited funds in a specific period of time when the city is a complicated fa place facing many challenges and to divide those funds as appropriate at a particularly given time. Yes, we have set-asides because we decide that some things are so important that we should always fund them. And, and I understand that there was an effort to do that at first, but what we have here makes absolutely zero sense to me. Um, I'll also just have to say, and this is why I would have opposed Supervisor Dorsey's original measure as well. Since 2017, this board has increased SFPD's funding by over $200 million. Just this year alone, when SFUSD came to us and asked for a $60 million increase to their budget, $25 million budget supplemental to pay for overtime costs and a new MOU with their union for $166 million over three years to fund recruitment and retention bonuses, we gave it to them. The past two years when SFPD and the mayor came to us with a budget for police, we gave them every cent they asked for. Yes, police are important to public safety. They, do, they, they don't they don't make public safety. They are an important component to ensuring public safety. And we've understood that the department has been understaffed for some times. And so this board and this mayor have supported 
all the efforts to recruit new officers, to hire new officers, to pay competitive rates. We've done that. We've not, we haven't said no for over two years. And in fact, we said yes to a massive increase just a few days ago. Just a few years ago, we took arbitrary numbers out of the charter when it comes to police staffing because we decided it didn't make any sense and it passed with you, you know, incredible support. Now we have this nonsensical ballot measure that creates a fund that we might be forced to put money into if we put a revenue tax on the ballot. Well, as someone who supported every new revenue measure, every new tax against the rich that has ever been on the ballot, I would not support that measure with this in, in place because what you're saying is that money will go straight to the cops. When people are starving in the street, the whole lecture that, or introduction that Supervisor Safai gave, I agreed with everything he had to say. That's precisely why I'm not supporting this measure. This makes no sense, colleagues, and I hope you'll join Supervisor Engardio and, and, and me for completely different reasons uh, to, to say no to this, this horrible, you know, mess of a piece of legislation. Supervisor Dorsey. Thank you, President. Thank you, President Peskin. I guess I'll stand up. So, colleagues, um, I don't believe there is a single issue more important to San Francisco residents and businesses today um, than public safety. And I don't believe there is a single factor more consequential to making progress on those public safety challenges than fulfilling the promise of a fully staffed police department. Um, Last month, when the police department presented to this board, uh, we heard sobering numbers. One third of the police department that is supposed to be there in San Francisco isn't there right now. Um, we are on pace to lose another 300 police officers who are eligible for full retirement right now. Uh, a police commander described this situation as potentially catastrophic. Um, and the thing about what we're trying to deal with here is that much of what we're facing in police understaffing as a crisis isn't unique to San Francisco. And in fact, this is a nationwide phenomenon. Much of this is a demographic issue that owes to Bill Clinton running for president in 1992 and making commitments that he was going to put 100,000 cops on the street, and he did it. It was about 125,000 cops, as it turns out. Um, it turns out also that police officers will eventually retire. So this was a foreseeable crisis that we probably should have been doing more to solve sooner than we did. But the fact is that right now, we are not competing as effectively against other jurisdictions in Northern California as we could be. And that's why you know, I was working on a charter amendment for most of this year, and I appreciate everybody, whether we agree or not, I appreciated the, the spirit of cooperation about addressing the, this issue and trying to address some of the things that I think the 1994 Charter Amendment got wrong that Supervisor Ronan talked about. I agree, we shouldn't have an arbitrary number in the Charter that, that is, stays there forever, and I think there was a right move with Prop E in 2020 um, to amend that. What I wanted to do in the Charter Amendment we were proposing before it was hijacked um, was to have a process for how we could have a minimum staffing level that's adjusted over time. Um, but it turns out 
um, that there was a hostile amendment offered. This is now not a police staffing measure. This is now has a contingent, um, a contingency in it that it will not take effect unless and until, quote, a future tax measure passed by the voters, unquote, is determined to generate sufficient, quote, generate a sufficient additional revenue to recruit and hire more police. Now, the notion that San Franciscans can only expect a fully staffed police department if they're willing to pay extra for it, in my view, is a marketing gimmick worthy of Spirit Airlines and not something that a responsible city government should be doing. Um, I believe that voters deserve the agency because it is their dollars to prioritize police staffing for just a five-year period to get us from a historic low of something like 700 cops short to a fully staffed police department in a way that won't break the bank, that had the support of the mayor's budget office, the mayor's policy director, the mayor, two chiefs of, a former chief of police, current chief of police. We are a city that is too invested in being safe and clean and welcoming to our residents and to our businesses, to commuters, to tourists, to conventioneers. In my view, this is a crisis we cannot afford not to solve. I think voters deserve the agency to prioritize that. I'm disappointed they won't get it. What they will get instead is a cop tax scheme, and I, I will just say this. Um, I don't think this is something that's gonna go over well with voters. Um, I think this is going to be an election where people want, it, want solutions on public safety, and I don't think they're getting it with the measure as amended. Um, so I will be opposing it. I know that we're gonna have even people who are from different perspectives. Uh, may agree on this, but I hope you will join me in voting no. Thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Dorsey. Uh, Mr. Controller, sorry to put you on the spot, and this might take you a minute, but how many approximately funded, vacant, rank-and-file Q2 police officer positions currently exist in the San Francisco Police Department? Take your time. Yeah, we'll give you a couple minutes. And while, while you're looking at that, how many academy classes were provided for in this year's 23-24 budget, Madam Budget Chair? A total budget of $785 million, out of which that's included four police academy classes. And each academy class if fully subscribed, is how many individuals? San Francisco Police Department is expected to hire in the next five fiscal years, each year, up to 100 police officers. That was the goal, and they have been falling short, not for the short of budget, but the fact that they really need help to have recruitment strategy. This is the reason why in the previous budget year, this body also approved a budget that includes $600,000 to provide the police department a recruitment consultant uh, to allow them to help with recruitment. 
So it is not for lack of funding, Madam Chair, it is for lack of applicants. Absolutely, but we do have some good news, and I mean, I don't want to take words out of the police department's mouth. In the previous fiscal year, they only have six graduated in police academy, but the most recently, they were able to have 25 graduated the police academy class, and do like lateral hiring about up to 30 police officers from other counties. Got it. Mr. Controller? Uh, Mr. President, Ben Rosenfield, Controller, it appears that the department has about 300 vacant funded Q2 positions currently vacant in the current budget. Thank you. Supervisor Preston. Thank you, President Peskin. Um, and um, yeah, I have some comments on, on this one. I do want to start. I will not repeat um, some of the points that uh, my colleague, Supervisor Ronan, made around the impact on future tax revenue measures. I will say that while I believe it was unintentional, I believe that um, this effectively, this charter amendment is a, uh, were it to pass, is a poison pill on future general revenue measures, uh, which would be uh, very difficult uh, to move forward and win support of. Uh, through 2029 uh, if this measure passes for the reasons that Supervisor Run identified. So um, I want to uh, articulate some concerns about the policy underlying uh, this charter amendment, and those would be similar comments that I would have made to the original uh, Dorsey uh, measure and now the Safai um, measure. And you know, the, we've talked about a lot of issues already. I don't want to cover ground people have covered, but it's, the, the amendment does two, the charter amendment proposes to do two things, right? It assigns a minimum staffing number, as we've discussed, undoing the previous voter-approved charter amendment uh, that had removed that minimum. So that's the first thing. And the second thing it does is when a trigger is met, it implements a mandatory set-aside of up to $30 million per year uh, for new hire bonuses uh, for police officers, $75,000 a head. Um, regarding the minimum staffing number, um, I think we all can appreciate people wanting more efficient and timely responses uh, when they contact uh, SFPD and when they're in need, when they're experiencing an emergency, folks deserve in this city to have um, a quick response. Um, and I don't think anyone on this board, I hope no one on this board disagrees with that, and I don't think anyone does. And I think we'd all also agree that too many of our constituents are not getting that kind of response uh, that they're entitled to and that they should get um, and that is, uh, is necessary. So I understand fully the frustration among a lot of constituents um, that leads to some of this policy discussion. That said, there is just no indication at all and no evidence that reinstituting this minimum staffing number will actually fix this issue in any way. So according to the newest matrix staffing report for SFPD, community-generated calls for services are actually down in comparison with similar calls before the pandemic in 2018. That informed the previously suggested uh, staffing numbers. Now, why this fact, declining calls for service, 
is totally absent from the discussion of police staffing levels whenever we discuss this. That has nothing to do with public safety, that has nothing to do with policy, has everything to do with politics. And more importantly, simply playing with theoretical minimums in a charter amendment, whether the original one or the amended one, does not magically create new police officers to the point about uh, that Supervisor Walton has spoken to many times and President Peskin alluded to around the vacancies. Uh, this police department is already funded for all of its staffing needs and, and hiring needs and then some, as Supervisor Ronan has pointed out, uh, getting literally hundreds of millions of dollars of increases, uh, and yet they still lack uh, the officers that they uh, say they need and cannot fill the academies. So why is this going to be different? There's also a question, and I think it's an important one when we're discussing this, of whether resources would be adequately deployed, even if this measure could recruit and result in the recruitment, recruitment of enough officers to meet the minimum staffing numbers that are being uh, proposed. So we know that the issue facing many of our neighborhoods and many of our constituents, um, especially our low-income neighborhoods, is not overall SFPD staffing, but rather the deployment of officers and how a department with an ever-growing, seemingly limitless budget and funding, how they choose to spend their money. So our downtown shopping district right now is literally flooded with police officers. And many will proudly tell you about the plan to flood downtown with police officers. And you go down there right now, they're everywhere. Police officers are everywhere downtown. But we can't get in the Tenderloin a consistent presence of police on blocks that have suffered repeated shootings just in the last week and homicides. That's not because of a shortage of police officers. Let's be really clear about that. It's not because of a shortage of police officers. So massive police presence downtown and little effort to deter or prevent violent crime in troubled residential neighborhoods. That's the reality in San Francisco. Big town, downtown corporations and rich neighborhoods get all the policing they ask for. While low-income, high-crime areas struggle for coverage unless it's part of a made-for-TV campaign to arrest people for their drug addiction and temporarily move them from public view only so that they can return later in the day to the same place and at higher risk of overdose death, fatality. So, colleagues, this is why we called for, and thank you all for supporting the, the budget legislative analyst audit of San Francisco Police Department's overtime deployments, reforming how the San Francisco Police Department deploys officers and the criteria guiding that exercise of discretion will do far more to address the situation uh, than yet another mound of funding that comes with no accountability whatsoever. The second part of the charter amendment, the mandatory set-aside for hiring bonuses, 
is deeply concerning on many levels. It's particularly concerning to me as chair of the Government Audit and Oversight Committee, and as Supervisor Ronan mentioned earlier this year, the GAO heard various unions' memorandums of understanding with the city, including the MOU with the Police Officers Association. Police Officers Association overwhelmingly ratified its MOU with the city, uh, an MOU that secured another $167 million for police over the next three years. The MOU process did not result in a proposal or include a proposal for hiring bonuses after extensive negotiations with Department of Human Resources. They negotiated many things, including bonuses. They didn't include these hiring bonuses that now appear. So the, the POA and DHR did not propose these hiring bonuses to the board during a process that took place less than a year ago when the board was asked to approve and did approve $167 million of increases as part of an unprecedented uh, package of raises and bonuses. So I don't know where this sudden call for $75,000 uh, hiring bonuses on top of all the bonuses that have already been promised to SFPD uh, is coming from. I'm not convinced that throwing this kind of money at recruitment bonuses uh, and new hires in the manner that would be required by this charter amendment will have its intended effect. And once triggered, uh, this set-aside will certainly take money from other crucial city needs and divert them to the San Francisco Police Department over and above the massive budget increases SFPD has already secured in successive budget cycles, year after year after year, and through the latest MOU. So colleagues, I wish we had before us a charter amendment that improved public safety and addressed the actual desire of our constituents uh, for greater community safety. This isn't it, and I will be voting no. Supervisor Walton. Thank you, President Peskin, and I will not be long in my comments because I've spoken on this several times in committee, uh, but I do just want to reiterate that our police department is already fully funded, and when Supervisor Chan demonstrated the numbers that have been going in the police academy over the last couple of years, that number 25, which is what the police department has promoted for recruitment classes, was actually a number that was dummied down. A real police academy class is supposed to require about 50 police officers. That's per the chief of police. And we have not gotten anywhere near those numbers. So the issue with the police department most certainly is the fact that we have not provided young people or people in community with the excitement about becoming a police officer. That's what has to change if we want to get a fully staffed department. But minimum staffing numbers have never been achieved historically. You give me a date and time when we've achieved minimum staffing numbers, uh, I would love to see it because it doesn't exist. We've never achieved minimum staffing le levels. And most certainly, this charter amendment as presented by Supervisor Dorsey and quite frankly, the current one, the goals of this charter amendment will never be achieved. We will not achieve minimum staffing levels per this charter. But at the very least, 
we should have a dedicated funding source if that is the goal and if this is passed. So I will be supporting the amended charter because if for some reason this was to move forward, there should definitely be a committed funding source for minimum staffing levels, which are arbitrary and will not be achieved. Supervisor Chan. Thank you, President Peskin and colleagues. I, um, you know, I think when uh, Supervisor Dorsey brought this and introduced it before us, the original version, I, I think I was, um, I have a lot of questions about it, um, especially as Supervisor Ronan has referenced that we just voted on this as a city um, to really undo the uh, minimum number. Uh, uh, that was a ballot measure championed by former uh, Board President Norman Yee uh, with the understanding that we need to be uh, intellectually honest about um, how many officers do we exactly need? And let's uh, have independent studies, which was uh, conducted by, in fact, under the leadership of former police commission president Malia Cohen. And with that study came an understanding that we need roughly about up to 2,100 police officers. Um, it's, it was a study that was issued March 2022. Um, along that time, you know, we, we recognized that that's, that was the need for the city and that uh, is during the budget, uh, the most recent budget, that I supported the total, like I mentioned earlier, a total of $785 million of police annual budget that's included four police academy classes. During the same time period in March of this year, this body also approved an MOU uh, for our police officers with the 10% of salary increase. In that MOU also included a retention bonus um, for the fifth year, seven year, and eight year police officers. Uh, with that, uh, it's the reason why I was surprised when Supervisor Dorsey uh, introduced this ballot measure um, in, in the, from the perspective that we ought to mandate uh, this uh, with uh, minimum police staffing when it seemed to me that the administration and this body um, in the last year and a half and definitely put the money where our mouth is uh, to continue to fund uh, the staffing and to drive toward that goal, recognizing especially during the $25 million police overtime that we approved during that presentation, I have asked specifically the police department to talk about their recruitment strategy. And it's the reason why I know that consistently they would say they need to recruit up to 100 police officers per fiscal year in the, ninth, in the next five fiscal years in order for us, for the city to meet that staffing goal. So. Again, I was surprised that Supervisor Dorsey when he introduced this ballot measure. It seems to me though, it's actually speaking volume about the lack of confidence in our administration. That clearly that there was lack of trust that the mayor uh, in her proposed budget in the coming years will be able to fund our police department to meet those public safety mandates that the city deserves. And I, while I question that uh, and but I do understand, I share that uh, actually concern that how this administration, our mayor, is un it's not capable to continue to be able to deliver efficient 
city services, including public safety. It's the reason why that our constituents, frankly, especially in the Richmond for us, time and time again, we know that we're the least, uh, the, the actually police station with the least staffing in the entire city. Uh, we have time and time again demanded resources and police staffing and also uh, ambassadors, and yet we did not hear back from, this, uh, from the mayor and her office to be able to make that commitment until so much later, including a murder that actually have to take place in Richmond Market. Um, and then now leading to the space where we're also facing budget deficit and we cannot uh, figure our way to really make sure that our city budget is equitable to ensure public safety, not just uh, staffing for our police officer, but all around firefighters, 911 call dispatchers and more. So with that, um, it's, it's been challenging and difficult. Um, and here we are. I just want to remind us today, though, I think there are other ballot measures that I voted uh, in the last uh, few weeks in support of it. Not necessarily means that I completely in agreement with it, but I do understand that, you know, uh, what we're doing here today is that we're going to present this to voters and have them decide and whether this is something that we that they, they believe that is the best way for the city to approach public safety and many other related issues that we're gonna see in March ballot. It's the reason why I'll be supporting this ballot measure today, that to actually present it again to the voters and let the voters decide. Thank you. Supervisor Stephanie. Thank you, President Peskin. Colleagues, thank you so much for your comments um, thus far. Um, they've really helped to solidify how I'm going to be voting. And I, I do want to say a few things about some of the comments that were said in terms of the policing right now. Um, police that are downtown right now, most of them are there on overtime. And the Tenderloin Station is the highest staff station in this city. <laughs> they get the most resources of any station to deal with the problems uh, and the issues that are there. And also, I just want to clarify, too, that the POA did ask for a hiring bonus during negotiations, and the city denied it. So uh, I just wanted to get that out um, and be clear on a few facts. And, you know, to be honest, the contempt and bitterness around this vote uh, is beyond distressing to me. I find it extremely unproductive and hurtful to a lot of people who are just trying to make a difference and tackle our most pressing problems in the way this has unfolded and the things that have been said to, to one another um, have been to me problematic. I consider, you know, this San Francisco to be the city of St. Francis. I say it all the time in these chambers. I hold myself um, to the goal to always try to be a channel of peace. And that means when there's hatred, bringing love, when there's discord, bringing harmony, when there's air, bringing truth, and when there's despair, bringing hope. It may sound corny to some, but it hasn't let me down yet. And I am approaching today's vote with that in mind. I have had to put all the noise aside with this because there's a lot and ask myself what I really think is the right thing to do here and what I think will get us to what the goal was in the first place, more police officers, which is the entire reason this policy was put forth in the first place. 
I started down this path with Supervisor Dorsey because I absolutely agree with him that we don't have enough police officers to address the concerns that our constituents are voicing to us on a daily basis. And I agree with Supervisor Walton when he says we haven't done enough to make it interesting enough or want for people to want to even become police officers. And that's where we also um, need to be focusing our efforts. Public safety, as I have said over and over again here, is a baseline obligation of what a well-functioning city government should do. And I do believe it's an absolute crisis that we are 600 police officers short of what's needed to meet the demand for service. That's based on a formula that we have agreed to and that has been approved and that Chief Scott has routinely come to this board and has um, informed us of. Like I said, public safety is foundational. Our ability to recover from the pandemic is continuing uh, to be hampered by the police officer shortage in a myriad of ways. It's something that I see in my district every day and I see throughout the city. But I do believe we need a fiscally responsible plan to get there. And I will support any measure that increases police staffing without forcing layoffs of other essential workers to pay for it, including what many people have mentioned today, 911 dispatchers, nurses, and other public safety workers. I've approached this decision with the same seriousness and focus I have with previous public safety matters during my almost now six-year tenure in this seat. And I've really become a pro at taking a lot of serious heat on my past decisions, no matter where it's coming from, so I'm used to it. But I will always do what I think is right in a situation. I've consistently supported the police and championed public safety policies. That's why I'm supporting the mayor's Safer San Francisco proposal. And despite the recent political fervor surrounding this issue, I want to emphasize that I will always endorse proposals aimed at enhancing public safety. I have stated too, I am not inclined, I've stated this on some housing issues, on other different policies, I'm not inclined to let perfect be the enemy of the good. My position on this matter is consistent with my past actions, such as my refusal to vote for the 2020 city budget due to what I thought at the time was insufficient funding for the police and inadequate support for struggling small businesses in the middle of the pandemic. My voting history on police commission appointees reflects my commitment to scrutinizing choices for the betterment of public safety. And again, I've taken other serious votes on police issues here at the board. Um, that I stand by and, like I said, have brought me a lot of flack. But recent incidents in District 2, including an attack on a muni driver, shootings, retail theft, and my firsthand experiences like car break-ins and home burglary, underscore the urgency to address the safety concerns in our community. One of our most basic functions is in to, in, to ensure resident safety and peace of mind. It is evident to me, evident to me that we have fallen short in this regard and I am determined to see tangible improvements. My priority is to make decisions that yield what I think are positive outcomes. I had concerns with this measure as first proposed due to the set-aside allocations, and I knew it was going to be a problem getting through this board. In San Francisco alone, we have 22 baseline set-asides already. That exceeds the total in every other city and county in the state combined. In fact, local governments in the rest of California have a total of 10 similar funding requirements. For comparison to other cities, Los Angeles has adopted two requirements, San Diego has one, and San Jose has none, and that's based on um, a controller's report. 
Concerns with set-asides are not new to anyone who has been paying attention to San Francisco politics. And in 2008, the voters told us that they had had enough of set-asides. Prop S set a policy back then, which passed by the voters, albeit non-binding, just like some of the other policy statements we're putting on um, the ballot in March, that set-asides, this is what Prop Proposition S said in 2008, that set-asides would be voted on only if paired with an adequate new source of funds so that the implementation of the set-aside will not cause a net decrease in general fund revenues. Besides, because set-asides limit discretionary spending, it further constricts our spending in times of economic downturns, which we all know are on the horizon. Total funding set-asides for this year's budget amount to $2.1 billion out of a total of $4.5 billion in general fund aggregate discretionary revenue, leaving us with $2.4 billion in discretionary revenue. That is not a lot out of a $14-plus billion um, budget in San Francisco. So my point is that it's hard when you're talking about set-asides. They're very hard to legislate, especially here at the board. And it is not shocking that other public safety personnel, like 911 dispatchers, who are also working double shifts, get a little nervous and feel a little left out um, during this process. So the question naturally becomes, how do we pay for this? It certainly does not have to be with a new and future tax measure. The language states it could be paid for by a measure that would amend an existing general or special tax to dedicate and or increase tax revenue to support police staffing and recruitment at the new minimum levels. So we don't have to pass a new tax for this to be meaningful. I do want to thank Matt, Supervisor Dorsey, for even bringing us to this point. We do have people that probably haven't agreed to before, or at least publicly, that we do need more officers, that the minimum staffing number will actually um, be in the charter with meaning behind it, not just a number that someone came up with. And if the voters agree, we will know we will have to find a way to pay for it. And my goal would be to redirect dollars from existing tax, which I think is very doable. I think that is moving the needle in the right direction. I know it's not exactly how it was envisioned to begin with, and I know this has been mentioned as a poison pill, but Supervisor Dorsey, through the president, I think you've actually planted a seed and have pushed this board to commit to doing more on this issue. The proposed measure provides voters with a chance to express, we're not voting on anything other than giving the voters to tell us what they think. That's what we're doing. We're putting something on the ballot for the voters to tell us how they think. A chance to express whether they desire more police presence. If that is the case, the real work will commence to establish a dedicated and meaningful funding stream for our police department. And I repeat, it doesn't have to be a new tax. We are not sending a tax measure to the voters today. I guarantee you, I will be working on a way to make certain we have real funding streams in place and will continue to vote for more police officers like I have consistently done on this board. And that includes figuring out ways, again, as Supervisor Walton said, to figure out how to get more police officers to want to come here and to even be police officers in the first place. We can continue to vote here at the board on recruitment, retention, overtime, and other ways to bring more officers, regardless of what's going on here, regardless of what goes to the voters. We still have jobs to do here, and we can still focus on those issues and try to bring solutions here and now. 
today I will uh, be voting in the affirmative to give voters a chance to let us know how they too feel on this issue. Thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Stephanie. Supervisor Melgar. Uh, thank you uh, very much, President Peskin. Uh, and thank you to all my colleagues for a very robust discussion and to Supervisor Dorsey and Safai uh, for their efforts. Um, I will also be voting yes on uh, this measure. Um, but I also wanted to say a couple things about it um, because it is not an ideal situation. Um, I, my, my um, issues with both the original measure um, and the amended measure is that uh, we are missing a big opportunity that we could actually be you know, taking up uh, in our roles as an oversight body uh, over this department. And so I, um, I will support the, the uh, argument that we are understaffed. I know in District 7, uh, the three precincts that serve District 7, Ingleside Park and Terraval, are very understaffed. And, you know, we uh, have lost beat officers. We have lost the opportunity for community policing. We have lost a lot of things that um, affect the day-to-day -day quality of life for our residents. Um, I think both downtown, which is our bread and butter in terms of our tax revenue and the neighborhoods should be safe. I think low-income communities, which bear the brunt of crime in our city, should be safe. I think everything should be staffed properly, both the police and 911 operators and uh, healthcare professionals and everyone who makes up the safety net to have a society that functions. I want to point out, colleagues, that um, just before the break, uh, we approved a settlement of nearly half a million dollars to uh, Officer um, uh, Mohammed Habib, who uh, sued the police department uh, for discrimination because he is a Muslim. Um, we uh, have also uh, approved multiple settlements from officers who were harassed and discriminated against because they were gay, because they were women. Um, and I think that it is, you know, in a 21st century police uh, force that responds to the needs of a very diverse and rich community um, like San Francisco, which is an international destination uh, that welcomes tourists from everywhere in the world that speak multiple languages, that bring multiple life experiences. We need a police department that is diverse, that has language capacity. Our uh, chief uh, has uh, stated as a goal to have 30% women by 2030, a goal that I wholeheartedly support. Um, I think we're missing the opportunity to help the department meet the goals that we all agree on um, by uh, putting some accountability along with the um, increased staffing uh, needs. And so um, I think that that's something that neither one of these versions do, but I do think that the amended version uh, gets us a little closer to something that I wanna see, which is a better staffing on my side of town. Uh, so for that, uh, I will be voting yes on this, um, and I hope that collectively we take up our uh, responsibility to make sure that this police department can recruit and hold on to a police force that is diverse and responds to the needs of our community as they are now and as they will be increasingly in the future. Thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Melgar. 
On item 18, Madam Clerk, would you please, oh, Supervisor Sefai. Do we need to have a motion to send this to, to the ballot? That is the question before us, so an so affirmative moves. vote would be a vote to submit it to the ballot, and negative vote would be not to submit. Am I correct, Madam Clerk? I, oh, okay. All right. On item 18, a roll call, please. On, on item 18, Supervisor Dorsey. No. Dorsey, no. Supervisor Ringardio. No. Ringardio, no. Supervisor Mandelman. No. Mandelman, no. Supervisor Melgar. Yes. Melgar, aye. Supervisor Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Supervisor Preston. Yes. Preston, no. Supervisor Ronan. Ronan, no. Supervisor Safagi. Aye. Safagi, aye. Supervisor Stephanie. Aye. Stephanie, aye. Supervisor Walton. Aye. Walton, aye. And Supervisor Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. There are six ayes and there are uh, five noes with Supervisors Dorsey, Ingardio, Mandelman, Preston, and Ronan voting no. The Charter Amendment is ordered submitted. Next item, please. Item 19, this is an ordinance to amend the Business and Tax Regulations Code to broaden the exemption from the increased transfer tax rates when the consideration or value of the interest or property conveyed equals or exceeds $5 million for transfers of certain rent-restricted affordable housing to apply the exemption retroactively to transfers occurring on or after January 1, 2017, and to extend the exemption through December 31, 2030, and to affirm the sequent determination and to make the appropriate findings. Roll call. On item 19. Supervisor Dorsey. Dorsey, aye. Supervisor Ringardio. Ringardio, aye. Supervisor Mandelman. Aye. Mandelman, aye. Supervisor Melgar. Aye. Melgar, aye. Supervisor Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Supervisor Preston. Aye. Preston, aye. Supervisor Ronan. Ronan, aye. Supervisor Safagi. Aye. Safagi, aye. Supervisor Stephanie. Stephanie, aye. Supervisor Walton. Walton, aye. And Supervisor Chan. Chan, aye. There are 11 ayes. All right, Madam Clerk, why don't we go to our 2.30 special order commendations. First up is Supervisor Chan. Thank you, President Peskin. Uh, today, I would like to invite our in-home service workers up to the podium. I don't know if they're here, and, uh, but I also see Mr. Poon. I think I saw Mr. Poon earlier. Um, but colleagues, November is National Family Caregivers Month, and I'm delighted to have the opportunity today to highlight the true, truly exceptional role and the invaluable work of our in-home supportive services providers. We are fortunate to have 26,000 dedicated um, in-home supportive services providers in San Francisco who do the essential work of delivering high quality uh, care for our seniors and low income residents. Uh, and the majority of income in-home caregivers are women of color and immigrants um, who themselves often struggle financially in order to provide these essential services. Their care and compassion ensures that our seniors and people with disabilities can live with dignity and independence in the comfort of their own home and age in place in the communities they live and thrive in. 
That is why it is so important to recognize their work, but also continue our advocacy to support these workers and honor their service by making sure they can afford to live in the communities they work in. Um, I will have a resolution on today's imperative agenda to honor our in-home supportive services providers and declare today in-home supportive services providers day. And I urge for your support, uh, but we also have them here today to accept the special recognition. I am trying to figure this out, but I see Mei Mei is here Mei Mei. as well. Oh. Come on up. President Peskin, if I may, could I say a few words in Chinese? Gumgumahutajapunsangle,tomaybelay 市三市,同我們這麼多的家居護理員,今天在這裡接受你們的讚揚。First of all, I want to be express my gratitude to all the supervisors and and also, uh, of course, our workers here uh, in uh, uh, here to uh, uh, accept uh, the recognition uh, the board of supervisors intend to um, uh, offer to uh, all our workers. Mm.呃，为我哋三藩市咁多嘅诶老人家服务啊，同埋残障人士服务，系我哋嘅荣幸。um, it's our honor as um, um, home care workers um, who uh, can serve uh, the, um, the vulnerable, the uh, senior uh, and the disabled uh, in the city. We can serve good people, serve good people, serve good we ourselves feel um, very happy that we are uh, able to serve uh, uh, our uh, vulnerable population, the, uh, uh, the senior, uh, the disabled, uh, uh, and do, the, do a good job. Uh, we are uh, very um, yeah, honored. And also, thank uh, and uh, we uh, want to uh, let you know that how um, um, uh, happy we are um, to have the trust uh, from uh, all the uh, supervisor um, on our work. But we are also a community of people who are very happy to continue to 
打好一個好好嘅基礎。Um, having said that, I have to reiterate that we are from the disadvantaged sector of society. Um, even with the current support, we still need to have a longer-term, long-term support from all of you. So, in some decisions of the government, we hope not to cut down on the decisions of the and so in making budget decisions, hopefully you all will bear in mind that when cutting certain funding or cutting the IHSS program, we will suffer from it. And just to be mindful when decisions are made on the budget. Thank you. 我哋嘅工作好艰苦，所以希望你哋继续支持我哋。We have a very difficult job to do, and very hopefully, we will continue to have your your support. Thank you. 郭代表家居护理人员喺度发几句言。首先，好感谢各位处参事对我哋家庭护理工人嘅尊重。對我哋家居護理者嘅需要嘅照顧，能到得到嘅撥款嘅尊重。I want to be here to represent our home care workers to say a few words. And first of all, I'm very thankful to all the support and and respect you show on our work as home care workers. 多謝呢個誒呢個預算委員會對我哋嘅預算更多嘅撥款。Thank you so much. And I want to show my gratitude to the budget committee for allotting more fundings in support of the IHSS program. Thank you very much. Happy In-Home Supportive Services Provider Day. Our next special order commendation will come from Supervisor Ronan. I can call the legendary Martha Ryan to the podium, please. Thank you, colleagues. Uh, today, I am especially honored to recognize the visionary and inspirational leader, Martha Ryan, founder and executive director emeritus of the Homeless Prenatal Program. In the more than 30 years since it has begun, HPP has assisted more than 100,000 families deliver healthy, drug-free babies and break the cycle of poverty. HPP is a shining example of a program that really works and that has profoundly transformed the trajectory of countless lives. 
The origin story of HPP began in the 1980s. After serving as a Peace Corps volunteer in Ethiopia, Martha came home to San Francisco and became a nurse practitioner. Then she returned to Africa to work as a nurse in refugee camps in Uganda and Somalia. In those camps, Martha witnessed the importance of investing in communities, of empowering women, and of providing comprehensive support beyond medical care for struggling families. When she returned, she was shocked by the poverty she found right at home in the San Francisco Bay Area. Sadly, that poverty still exists today. While working at the Southeast Health Center in the Bayview Districts, one of her mentors, and a little secret between all of us, uh, his name might be might be Dr. Dan, just throwing that in there. Um, the medical director at the time of Healthcare for the Homeless told her that shockingly, there were women in the shelter who were homeless and pregnant who weren't getting any appropriate care. Martha, in disbelief, agreed to go out and take a look. When she got to the shelter, she found a room with mats lined up against the wall and three women at different stages of their pregnancies, but not one was getting care. People would say, oh, that's terrible, but nobody was doing anything about it. Martha immediately recognized an opportunity to help. She knew that these women needed critical support, safe housing, prenatal care, and a healthy diet, and that pregnancy could be a window of opportunity to change the direction of a family's life. Martha secured a grant from the San Francisco Foundation for $52,000 and launched the Homeless Prenatal Project out of an empty closet at a family shelter. In the first year, HPP served 72 clients. 34 years later, under Martha's visionary leadership, HPP is a revered and celebrated program that has consistently improved and expanded its services that now has a $17 million budget and serves more than 3,500 families per year. HPP is widely recognized as a beacon and a national model. HPP's two-generational approach works upstream to halt the cycle of family and childhood poverty. HPP's success lies in Martha's fundamental belief that to improve life for the children, you must see the strength and ability of their parents by investing in and empowering them to overcome their challenges. Without that empowerment, the children are the next generation in the pipeline of chronic homelessness. Martha's vision of empowerment includes tapping into the strengths and potential of her incredible, incredible staff and listening to ideas from staff whose life's experience tell them what the clients need. Over 50%, and this is truly a remarkable figure, of HPP staff are former clients from the communities that the organization serves. Martha, we are just in awe of you. We are so proud of you. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for your incredible contributions to health, happiness, and well-being of countless children and families. I'm, ge I'm, I'm getting the chills just saying these words. You have made San Francisco and the world a better place. Absolutely no question. Thanks to your life of service, activism, determination, and love, HPP will continue to prosper and be a beacon of hope for generations to come. Thank you. Thank you. Be Before you speak, unsurprisingly, we have colleagues who want to say a few oh, words. So okay. um, I'll turn it over to <laughs> Supervisor Walton through the chair. Thank you so much, Supervisor Ronan. And I just have to take the time to, to speak about Martha briefly. Uh, and although I don't think you're fully retired, um, 
And and I'm not speaking just because you were redistricted out of D District 10, <laughs> but because you know since my early days as a family resource center director, I had an opportunity to watch you, work with you, and just see the commitment that you put into making sure that families and, and mothers were able to receive the support that they needed, and you've done it for so many years. Um, I'm most proud about the reactivation of Jelani House in Bayview and the way you were able to find a place for mother, young mothers and expecting mothers to be able to live and be safe uh, and also the fact that you were able to purchase a building and we work to make sure that it's going to be 100% affordable housing. I think that's just a, a, a perfect way to move forward and pass on leadership to Shalina Eskridge and just want to say thank you so much for all of your work and looking forward to continue work with HPP. Thank you for your for demonstrating and being an example. Thank you. Thank you, President Peskin, and thank you, Supervisor Ronan, for this amazing honoree before us today. I am so incredibly lucky to know Martha Ryan, and I remember when we first met, I, I nicknamed you right away Saint Martha because <laughs> I, I was just in awe of everything you were doing, and I was lucky enough to be able to serve on the board of directors of the Homeless Prenatal Program for six years. And I remember even having my my daughter at the time, I'd bring her to the meetings, and um, I'd have her in the little, pushing her around in the meetings, and it was just, of course, having babies at the Homeless Prenatal Program was just something you did. <laughs> but uh, I, those six years that I served on the Homeless Prenatal Program board taught me so much, and they taught me the uh, what what an incredible nonprofit can do and the profound impact a, a nonprofit like yours can have on our most pressing issues and it almost seems so effortless in terms of you know you wanted to do something, we think, well, we need the money, and then the money would appear. And it was like, oh, it's Martha. You know, or, uh, you know, you want to do the family planning. Well, we got to get this. Well, then it happens. Well, Martha figured it out. And, you know, I felt like sometimes, too, as a board member, um, you know, we're supposed to question the executive director and all of these things. I was like, well, whatever Martha says, <laughs> I, I think that she can make it happen. So I was probably one of the board members that just absolutely followed your lead, but believed in you and saw that every vision you had became a reality and it just grows and grows like like Supervisor Walton was mentioning, Jelani House, and now the building next door and how you want to do housing. And it's just, and what I most remember too is being at the Our House um, fundraisers in May. And then of course we were just recently at the luncheon and the personal stories of the people that you touch and the lives that you turn around and just watching what how they grow and what happens to their children and of course my good friend Latifa Simon and how she was once someone who was served and that's I remember when Latifa and I were in a merge together and we figured that out that she had been served by HBP and I was on the board and we were in the same emerge class it just it's magic what you do and I, I will continue to be in awe of it and learn from it and just in such gratitude for who you are and all the lives that you've made a difference in. And I know we have an incredible new executive director and I can't wait to continue to work with a homeless prenatal program. But Martha, there are not enough words for me to string together to say how important you are, how amazing you are and what an impact you've had on my life. So thank you so much for just being incredible. 
Thank you. Supervisor Preston. Oh, Preston. Thank you, uh, President Peskin, and, and thank you, colleagues, for, for all your words and for uh, Supervisor Ronan uh, for, for the, the real summary of the incredible, inspiring uh, work of, of Martha. And I, and I just learned, I didn't realize that, that the building had been redistricted out of D10. <laughs> I was over here, you know, I'm still sad because Martha's personal residence was redistricted out of D5, so it's no longer <laughs> constituent. But, um, I, you know, I, I just want to add um, my thanks to you um, for your incredible uh, creativity, your optimism, your years and years of service um, to the city, and really inspiring so many other efforts, not just at HPP, but everything from our work at the Oasis, and, and, and things that, I, that your history of showing how you can make the impossible happen uh, with the kind of commitment and the kind of deep respect that you have uh, for folks who are struggling and for always centering uh, the needs of those who are struggling the most uh, in our city. So um, I just want to thank you for, for all of your incredible work. Thank you. It is your turn now. It is my turn. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much, uh, Supervisor Ronan, and all the supervisors, and Catherine, for your uh, service on the HPP uh, uh, board for six years. Um, I remember that time well. You know, HPP started in a closet in a shelter, and it grew, it has grown into an institution here in San Francisco. That happens not because of one person, that happens because of a team of committed people working together to make change. And some of my team, a very small portion of my team, some had to leave and some are still working, many are still working now, but I'd like them to join me up here because it is they that actually make the magic happen. Um, our, <laughs> so I, I just want to say that the strategy, is, as Supervisor um, Ronan mentioned, um, has been a two-generational gen, approach. We believe in helping mothers, and if you can help them, it, in order for the moms to be able to have healthy babies, in order for the children to be able to grow, you cannot just help the mothers, you, you cannot just help the babies and the children, you must help the mothers. And, and so, so that they can, so the children can thrive and have obtained critical needs. And one of those critical needs is housing. Um, because we don't see families on the street, that doesn't mean that there are no homeless families. I guarantee you there are children learning to crawl in cars. I was talking to a staff member before I left here, and she was doing a, a group with some uh, postpartum moms, and she was saying that there's so many of her clients that are, she says, three out of, seven out of ten are homeless. And I said, what kind of homelessness? And she said, they're living in single room occupancy hotels. And we all know that those are rooms without a, a, a restroom, without a kitchen, and it's where the entire family grows. It's not fit for growing for, for growing family. And we do believe in upstream work. And we need to, we believe that if you go upstream, you gotta figure out what it is that's causing families to fall into homelessness and poverty, and then try to figure it out. And I guarantee you, if we don't do that, 
that the next generation and possibly the next two generations of chronically homeless children, chronically homeless adults are in the pipeline now. And we cannot do, let that happen. And I really, I challenge all of you uh, here on the Board of Supervisors to advocate for family housing. Housing is foundational. Nothing happens without housing. Families tell us over and over again, how do we expect families to make it if they don't have a place to live? We can do better. And that HPP, you're right. Yes, we did purchase that building next door to us and on 18th Street in District 9. And what an ideal place to be able to make change, to house and support families in need, to help them exit poverty and to help them exit homelessness. Sadly, it does not appear that families are a priority. And I want you all to please hear that. I would, we would be nothing if I did not listen to the families we serve. We need to advocate for families. Now, I have retired. I really have retired. And it really gives me the utmost pleasure to introduce to you today the woman who you will see a lot of because she is an incredible woman and an advocate. She's smart, she cares, she's committed, and she does not give up when it comes to serving families. Shalina Eskridge, the Executive Director of the Homeless Prenatal Program. Thank you, thank you. Hello, Board of Supervisors. Hello, it's an honor to be here today. It's an honor to formally meet many of you. As Martha says, Shalina Eskridge, the new Executive Director of Homeless Prenatal Program. I just want you all to know that this work that we do is real and very near and dear to my heart as a San Francisco native and as someone who has had a family member, many family members go through HPP program. I know exactly um, what it means to like be an SF resident and need services. And so I plan to continue the work Martha has done. I think it's very easy for me to, um, well not easy, I would say easy to follow in Martha's footsteps as they say, but people have said, oh you have big shoes to fill, but I don't feel like it's feeling in Martha's shoes because you cannot do that. For me, it's like, how do we all work together? How do we partner together as a community, as families, as our staff to really make a difference um, in the lives of our families? And Martha said, we got some work to do. So you'll be seeing me and I hope that we can partner together and make a difference for our families in the city. Thank you. We look forward to it. Thank you and congratulations. Thank you very much. Last but not least, we will go to District 11 Supervisor Asha Safai. Thank you, colleagues. Uh, today, it, it truly is my honor. Um, I guess I'm, a get, I'm getting a little old. I've, I've been in this city long enough that I've known someone for over and worked with them for over 20 years. Um, so it really is a deep, deep honor of mine to, to honor the incredible legacy of, of Joe Martinez. Joe, if you could come forward. Uh, the founder and until recently uh, the executive director of Mission Child Care Consortium. Uh, Joe Martinez was born in Taos, New Mexico. 1948, uh, but has been a longtime San Francisco resident and community leader. He began working at the age of 14 
Um, and when he was 17 years old, he was part of the youth group called the Mission Rebels uh, in the Mission District. This group helped train teenagers, uh, obtain jobs. A few years later, he started working at Mission Language Vocational School, MLVS, um, and continued service to his community and a commitment to help people find jobs. Uh, so we're starting to see a theme. Joe's at a young age, giving to people, helping people. On November 2nd, 1970, Mayor Joe Alioto uh, appointed him to the Mission Model Neighborhood Corporation, which back then was a critical group in the mission community, tasked with formulating ideas, identifying priorities, and setting goals to benefit and uplifting, uplifting the communities of San Francisco. Um, and in Joe's case, particularly, uh, he was the youngest board of directors members representing the mission community at the time. In 1978, Joe received his degree in social services from San Francisco City College. He continued to go to school at San Francisco State and the University of San Francisco, and he decided on serving families and infants and toddlers. His vision was to create a culturally competent learning environment for children, which led him to consolidate five child care centers into one facility in the Mission District, which was the birth of Mission Child Care Consortium. I think at the time, and this isn't part of this kind of off script, but at the time, it was an old funeral home. So Joe had to go and convince all the families that it would be okay to be in a building where there had been formerly uh, dead bodies. Um, and Joe met with every single family member <laughs> and convinced them that the spirits would be on their side. Um, Joe continued to seek another facility to provide childcare development for the over 200 children that were being served now in this childcare facility um, who needed to go to work, attend school, or continue the training in their life. His vision and early commitment was to provide more jobs for the community as child care providers, but also child care opportunities so that people could continue to advance. And then training for his staff, which he absolutely accomplished above and beyond many people at that time. In 1987, he found a building that was a former electrical facility, electrical workshop of 4750 Mission Street out in the Excelsior, and embarked on his effort to secure that building to remodel it and turn it into a child care facility. This building is 25,000 square feet, um, so it's a, a really large facility. At the time, and I'll say this, I think Joe was a visionary. He was committed to securing sufficient space that not only would provide childcare, but also be able to feed families because there was a, he, he put in a kitchen and a facility that could serve food to families that were in need. And so he was ahead of his time again on the issue of, of food insecurity that he saw so many families dealing with at the time. Freshly made food was a big deal for Joe. And as we know that this has become a big part of what we've tried to provide here in the city and county of San Francisco. Additionally, he wanted to ensure that there was a playground for the children to enjoy outdoors. So in 1992, they officially opened Mission Child Care Consortium. And throughout his leadership and tenure, Joe continued to secure partnerships with the mayor's office, Department of Children, Youth, and Families, to extend childcare and preschool slots. And at the time of his retirement, which was just recently, he served Mission Child Care for 42 years um, at the Mission Child Care Consortium. 
It's now in its 52nd year of operation with over 220 children. It is the largest private child care facility in the entire city and county of San Francisco outside of the Unified School District facilities. Um, and thank goodness um, he continued his vision and advocacy for development services because before he retired, he achieved the goal of helping Mission Child Care buy their building. And if they had not bought their building prior to COVID, they would have absolutely gone out of business. When I met Joe, and this is why I started my speech 20 years ago, I made a commitment to him when I was working with Mayor Newsom that we would help him buy that building. At the time, they were paying $25,000 a month in rent, just in rent, for their space. And it seemed crazy that they couldn't take that money and put it into a mortgage. So I didn't accomplish it when I worked for the mayor, but right when I got elected as supervisor, we were able to finalize with Mayor Lee the ribbon cutting of that building and helping them buy their building. And that was all due to Joe's tenacity and determination. So Joe, I just want to thank you for your leadership, your vision, legacy you've left. You've handed on the reins to your daughter, Melanie, and she's done a tremendous job. She's not as cranky in the morning as you are. <laughs> <laughs> But she loves children, she loves the community, and she's just as committed as you are, and you've handed on the torch to a, a phenomenal person. So it really, really is my honor as your friend, as someone that's worked with you for over 20 years, to honor Mission Child Care for the 50 years that they've done. It's a couple years past that time now. And honor you, Joe, for everything you've done for San Francisco, the legacy you built, and the road that you've paved for so many people to follow in your footsteps. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, how many nonprofits make it to 50 years? You know, it, it's been a long journey. I'm proud to have worked for Mission Child Care for 46 years. I'm proud to know Asha. If it wasn't, I want to recognize him because him and Mayor Lee made it possible to be able to have Mission Child Care own its building. We were paying a ridiculous amount of rent and they wanted to raise our rent even more. Some developer wanted to come in and get the building. And you know, Asha, you and Mary Lee will, are in my heart. I'll never forget what you and Mary uh, Lee did. I remember Ellie's daughter at the memorial. She's, she said, my dad woke me up this morning and said, we gotta go help some children. So get up, we're going. And that day when I walked into his office was just the day that I'll always remember. And he said, Joe, don't worry, we're gonna get that building for you. And so I thank Asha so much, and Mayor Ed Lee, and I wanna thank you, the Board of Supervisors, for this honor. It is deeply an honor. Um, I didn't expect to be here. Uh, I thought it was just gonna be an award that was gonna come to the executive director, and. It was going to be brought to the desk, but it turned out um, I'm deeply grateful. 
this is a huge honor, especially after my 46 years. Thank you very, very much. Thank you and congratulations. Madam Clerk, let's return to our regular agenda. Could you please read item number 20? Item 20 is a resolution to authorize the RPD, the Recreation and Park Department, to accept and expend up to $3.9 million in grant funding from the California Department of Parks and Recreation for the Buchanan Mall Project to enter into a grant contract with the California Department of Parks and Recreation that require, among other things, that the RPD maintain the park as public open space in perpetuity and to record a declaration of restrictions on the Buchanan Mall property and to provide notice of these restrictions. Supervisor Preston, do you wish to speak on this item? Seeing no names on the roster, same house, same call, the resolution is adopted. Madam Clerk, can you please read items 21 through 23 together? Yes, items 21 through 23 comprise three resolutions that approve three port commission leases. Item 21 approves a lease L17035 with Recology San Francisco, located at Pier 96 for approximately 196,000 square feet of shed, outbuilding, and loading dock space, and to approve 252 uh, uh, square feet of paved land and yard space, which will initially generate 370,000 of revenue to the port per month for 74 months and to adopt the appropriate findings. Item 22 approves lease number L-17093 with Anderson Enterprise, Inc., located at Pier 68 and 70 Shipyard for approximately 116,000 square feet of paved land and approximately 2,000 square feet of shed space for 67,000 uh, for the initial monthly rent and a three-year term with three mutually agreeable one-year extension options. And for item 23, this resolution approves certain amendments to the form of the parcel lease between the port and seawall lot 337 associates uh, at, to approve certain amendments to the leases for parcels A, B, F, and G with affiliates of the developer and to adopt the appropriate findings. Same house, same call. The resolutions are adopted. Next item. Item 24, resolution to supplement Board of Supervisors resolution number 7-17 to authorize the issuance and sale of San Francisco Infrastructure and Revitalization Financing District Number 1 for Treasure Island of one or more series of bonds for $10 million and to approve related documents, including the official statement, one or more supplements to indentures of trust, the bond purchase agreements and the continuing disclosure certificates, uh, and to determine other matters in connection as defined herein. Same house, same call. The resolution is adopted. Next item. Item 25, this is a resolution to approve and authorize the execution of a second amendment to the loan agreement with Sunnydale Infrastructure Phase 1A3 LLC for a new loan amount of approximately $26.6 million to finance additional construction costs for the second phase of infrastructure, improvements, and housing development related to the revitalization and master development of up to 1,770 units of replacement public housing, affordable housing, and market rate housing, commonly known as the Sunnydale Hope SF development, and to adopt the appropriate findings. Same house, same call. The resolution is adopted. Next item. Item 26, resolution to authorize the issuance and sale of one or more series of special tax bonds for City Community Facilities District Number 
uh, 2016-1 for Treasure Island with respect to its improvement area number two in the amount not to exceed 17 million and to approve related documents to include the official statement, the first supplement to the fiscal agent agreement, the bond purchase agreement, and the continuing disclosure undertaking and other matters as defined herein. Same house, same call. The resolution is adopted. Next item. Item 27, this motion directs the budget and legislative analyst to conduct two additional performance audits in fiscal year 2023 and 2024 on the management of street cleaning by Public Works and of the citywide interdepartmental agreements. Same house, same call. The motion is approved. Madam Clerk, could you please read items 28 and 29 together? Items 28 and 29 are two resolutions. Item 28 adds placemaking street sign uh, signs reading leather and LGBTQ cultural district to 26 existing street signs in the South of Market neighborhood in the vicinity of the leather and LGBTQ cultural district generally bounded by Brannon, 3rd, Mission, 12th, and Division Streets in recognition and honor of the extensive history and contributions of the leather and LGBTQ community. And item 29 adds the commemorative street name MTT Way to the 200 block of Grove Street in recognition of San Francisco Symphony Music Director Laureate Michael Tilson Thomas's tremendous impact on San Francisco and local arts and culture in the city throughout his 25 years as the symphony's music director and to celebrate his 79th birthday. Same house, same call. The resolutions are adopted. Next item. Item 30, this is an ordinance to amend the police code to extend the end date of the cannabis event pilot program uh, from December 31st, 2023 to December 31st, 2026. Same house, same call. The ordinance is passed on first reading. Next item. Item 31. This is a resolution to determine that the issuance of a type, 20, type 48 on sale general public premises liquor license to Universal Life Corral LLC, doing business as the stud located at 1123 Folsom Street, will serve the public convenience and to request that the California Department of Alcoholic Beverage Control impose conditions on the issuance of the license. Same house, same call, the resolution is adopted. Committee reports, please. Yes, items 32 through 35 were considered by the Land Use and Transportation Committee at a regular meeting on Monday, November 27th. Item 32 was referred without recommendation as amended with a new title, and I will read the whole new title. Item 32 is an ordinance to amend the planning code to encourage housing production by exempting under certain conditions specified housing projects from the notice and review procedures of section 311 and the conditional use requirement of section 317 in areas outside of priority equity geographies, which are identified in the housing element as areas of or neighborhoods with a high density of vulnerable populations and to remove the conditional use requirement for several types of housing projects to include housing developments on large lots in areas outside of the priority equity geographies special use district and projects that build additional units in lower density zoning districts and senior housing projects that seek to obtain double density to amend the rear yard the front set back lot frontage, minimum lot size, and residential open space requirements in specified districts, 
to allow additional uses on the ground floor in certain buildings and residential buildings, homeless shelters and group housing in residential districts, and administrative review of reasonable accommodations to expand the eligibility for the Housing Opportunities Mean Equity, the San Francisco Home SF Program, and density exceptions in residential districts to exempt certain affordable housing projects from certain development fees to authorize the planning director to approve state density bonus projects subject to delegation from the Planning Commission, and to make conforming amendments to other sections of the Planning Code, to amend the zoning map to create priority equity geographies special use district, to amend the subdivision code to update the condominium conversion requirements for projects utilizing residential density exceptions in RH districts, and to affirm the secret determination and to make the appropriate findings. Supervisor Melgar, Chair of the Land Use and Transportation Committee, the floor is yours. Thank you so much, uh, President Peskin. Um, colleagues, uh, this item has gotten a lot of press over the last few months. Uh, it has been um, a pretty heavy lift to work with all of the stakeholders on um, a uh, matter that pertains to the processes of our seven by seven square mile city um, with a code that is extremely complicated and that has evolved over time. We have been working closely with um, our city attorney, the planning department, the mayor's office, and my colleagues on the land use committee to uh, come out with something that's is true uh, to the uh, letter of the law and the intent of our housing element, which we approved unanimously, and also met, meets the technical compliance of the various uh, pieces of legislation that have passed and been signed into law by our governor uh, this past year. And there are many, many pieces of legislation. So it's been a complicated um, exercise. Nevertheless, we uh, were able to uh, send this piece as a committee report yesterday uh, from the Land Use and Transportation Committee. However, 45 minutes before this meeting started, we did get a corrective action letter from the folks at the State Housing Development um, uh, uh, Department, and uh, it warns us about one of the amendments uh, that we made. So um, it's gonna take us a little bit of time to make sure that um, we pass what we bring before you uh, is a compliant piece of legislation. Uh, in addition, there is uh, another piece of legislation that um, uh, Supervisor Mandelman will speak about, which I think is consistent with uh, the goal of this streamlining legislation, which is to maximize the production of housing units if we are adding bulk uh, to the buildings in San Francisco. So um, it is still something that is moving. Um, I want to assure all of you uh, that in terms of the timing, um, you know, the first 30-day uh, deadline that has been made much about in uh, the press passed on Thanksgiving Day. That was a day where none of us were in this building and none of the staff at HCD uh, were in their building. So uh, we heard this at the very earliest possible date, which was past the deadline, and that was on the 27th. Um, what that does is that it requires them to issue a corrective action letter, which they did 45 minutes ago, and then we have 30 days to correct. So um, if we vote on it today, 
or next week that still leaves us with um, the meetings on the 5th um, and the 12th uh, to vote on something and still have a good two weeks before the deadline for the corrective action compliance. And so I just want to make sure that we all understand that we are within the time frame. We are cutting it close. However, uh, this is a complicated city with buildings that share lot lines uh, with a very long and rich history of uh, land use uh, struggles. Um, and uh, I think that um, I more than anything, want to thank my colleagues on the Land Use and Transportation Committee for all of the work and time that we have put into it, Supervisor Preston and President Peskin. Um, and so uh, thank you very much. I will turn it over to my colleague, Supervisor Mandelman. Thank you, Chair Melgar, Supervisor Mandelman. Uh, thank you, President Peskin. Um, and I'm going to make a motion uh, as uh, uh, as Chair Melgar indicated that I likely would to continue this um, item one week. Um, uh, in, in her remarks, uh, Chair Melgar gave a couple of reasons um, for that continuance. Um, uh, but I do want to just thank um, the Chair and the members of the Land Use Committee for many, many meetings um, where um, they poured through a pretty complicated piece of legislation. Um, we are doing big things um, to our processes um, with regard to the for, to the my reason for seeking a continuance today. Um, one of my concerns about this legislation um, is that potentially it could end up leading to the streamlining of monster home demolitions and monster home development, uh, particularly in my district. That is a concern that many District 8 supervisors have had, and both then Supervisor, Wien, now State Senator Weiner, and I have sought to address those concerns through the creation of CUs. We are in an era where uh, we are uh, not where we are trying to not have as many CUs, and one of the uh, purposes of the streamlining legislation is to get rid of as many discretionary approvals as we can. I still think there's a way to regulate, um, to avoid monster homes uh, in the central neighborhoods that I represent, um, but to do that, we needed to amend the uh, streamlining legislation, and to do that procedurally, we needed to send that proposal back to planning. That proposal is gonna be heard at the Planning Commission on Thursday, so I think it can come back to us for action um, as part of this uh, approval next week. Um, but to do that, I would, uh, as a matter of collegial courtesy, ask that my colleagues give me a week to try and uh, get my last uh, amendment in shape um, for consideration. Motion by this made body. to continue the item one week by Supervisor Mandelman. Is there a second for that motion? Seconded by Chair Melgar. Uh, to the motion, Supervisor Chan. Uh, thank you, President Peskin. I am not speaking on about the motion, but the legislation uh, itself. I just first want to thank the Land Use Committee for all your hard work in the last few months um, to really make sure that this is right for San Francisco um, in the context of trying to in, be in compliant, uh, compliance to the state mandate. I do want to put in context that I think what we know about San Francisco and housing stock that we have 
or have not, you know, it's, it's the fact that we know that last year from Supervisor Dean Preston's um, request for the budget and legislative analyst report that we have 40,000 of empty home units um, and through the housing elements process that we know we have 60,000 approved housing units in the pipeline waiting to be built. We know that from Supervisor Asha Safai's again, uh, request to the budget and legislative analyst uh, that we have a report that tells us that we have roughly well over 300 below market rate units when there are SRO families living in Chinatown and Tenderloin yet still cannot afford these below market rate units and, and be able to obtain them and move in. And what we have done as a body during this time though, which I appreciate, want to express my thanks again to colleagues who have land use expertise, including Supervisor Mandelman's four-plex legislation, Supervisor Malgar's family housing opportunity legislation to really make sure that we not only build, but also that west side you know, uh, of the city can continue to build. And with that, we also, I think as a city, has consistently uh, make sure, and along with board president, to make sure that we continue to build homes, that including that we recognize that 60,000 units already approved waiting to be built. With that is the reason why we also supported board president's legislation to lower inclusionary percentage, inclusionary housing percentage, so we can boost that production. We also put our money where our mouth is. In 2019, the city has, has approved uh, a $600 million of affordable housing bond. In fact, this body, again, also just approved and put on the March ballot measure another $300 million of housing bond. We are anticipating to see a $1.5 billion that to come to San Francisco alone, a regional housing bond this coming November in 2024. Time and time again, we see that we are building. And when I think about that 60,000 approved housing units waiting in the pipeline, that's not just on one sector of the city. We know it's Mission Rock, we know it's Treasure Island, but we also know that there's power, you know, patrol power station, there's Lake Merced, uh, there is Park Merced and Stonestown. We are building as a city. And Bob Reservoir. Thank you, Supervisor Malgar. And so we are building as a city, and we are committed to build, um, you know, so this optic to somehow that the city is not building, I, I think is quite the contrary. We are building, we're putting our money where our mouth is, not just this body, not just the board of supervisors, so, so are our voters. Our voters, San Francisco residents, time and time again step up to support these affordable housing bond. But what I have found, though, colleagues, is that the state law, time and time again, that um, it's not necessarily in the best interest of San Francisco. What I have learned throughout time, that especially in the most recent uh, last few days, it, uh, perhaps we saw the correspondence between our planning department and um, the department's uh, uh, of housing, state departments of housing, it's specifically about assessor dwelling units. And in that correspondence, what I have identified and in my time and learning about more about assessor dwelling units in San Francisco, that I see that the state law um, is really driven by developers and realtors uh, in, when it comes to state law governing by uh, governing around accessory dwelling units. And let me give you an example. State law actually, in fact, prohibits San Francisco to install sprinkler system for in our accessory dwelling units, and that that 
again, it's fascinating to me that in the time when we have to deal with wildfire and learning lessons from Maui, we are yet not being able to install sprinkler uh, system in our assessor dwelling unit. Uh, the same correspondence that I learned that there's also questions about what I consider as collapsed zone, meaning that we should allow space um, in our rare yard that for accessory dwelling units to be built in rare yard that we allow collapsed zone in the event of earthquake. These are, my, as I am being told, especially the sprinkler system installation is cost prohibited. Therefore, it's not allowed to be installed for these accessory dwelling units by state law. And that brings the question that, so cost prohibited, that means profit over fire and earthquake safety. And those are the questions that I continue to have about these state laws that are imposed upon us today and from now on. While I appreciate our city attorney, David Chu, who was our formerly assembly member, also the state assembly members uh, at the state assembly as our chair of housing committee uh, that you know, come with a lot of expertise around um, housing policy, both not just in San Francisco, but also in the state of California. I too really am hoping that, you know, now as our city attorney, that he will uh, fight for us and defend us in the best interests of San Franciscans. It's the reason why a co-sponsored board president's resolution urging him and his office to make sure that we, uh, in the best interests of San Francisco, can really defend our interests um, and, uh, you know, in negotiation and conversation with the Department of Housing and community development and from the state level. So with that, colleagues, I, I just have a lot of skepticism uh, with this legislation before us today, but most importantly, the continuing um, mandates from the state that uh, seems to be out of the realm of what I would consider um, we have done along with housing elements and what we have already approved and, uh, and that we will continue to comply and we have done everything that we can uh, time and time again to prove that both in policy and money that we, we are you know, in the best interest of San Francisco to also comply in these state laws. But I, I, it seems like it's never enough. Um, and so I, I'm just gonna say, stop right here and, and, and just, disappointed to see how this continue to unfold, uh, the, the, how that the goalposts can continue to move away from us uh, each and every time when we do our best to comply. Thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Chan, Supervisor Dorsey. Thank you, President Peskin. Um, I do want to clarify just for the record that um, as a matter of collegiality, I'm inclined to be uh, supportive of the continuance. If I may, though, just given the, the uh, sort of the, the last you know, the recent letter through the president, may I ask the city attorney, is there's a line on page three um, to safely ensure that the city implements this action on time, HCD recommends that the Board of Supervisors pass the ordinance without these or additional substantive amendments. Is there anything that we, that a continuance vote would do that would jeopardize our compliance? Or is this a? Not December 28th yet, Councilor. Deputy City Attorney Ann Pearson, um, if you are continuing the item today, it will remain in the current form until next week. And at that point, if you wish to take action on that recommendation or take any action at all, you'll still have time to do that. Okay, okay. So then I will be um, 
supporting the continuance because I, I know it will uh, pass today, but I do intend to do everything I can to make sure um, that we are in compliance with um, our obligations under state law. Um, I will save the, the bulk of my uh, remarks for uh, next week when we vote on the items, but I uh, do want to mention that just in my career, and I've said this before, I've seen many times when San Francisco is in the crosshairs of um, other governments or oversight bodies, and um, you know, when we have the option of playing by the rules, I think it's a good idea to, to do so. Um, I would rather that San Francisco be an example of how to um, comply with our obligations under state law than in a cautionary tale of how not to. Um, mostly, however, I, I do want to express uh, my gratitude to all of the work, to people who have done a lot of the work on this. Uh, and I know there's a lot of work involved in this um, kind of thing, uh, from the mayor's office staff, the planning department, uh, many of my colleagues for their thoughtful amendments and engagement, uh, my legislative aide, Madison Tam, but I want to especially um, express my gratitude to Supervisor Melgar, um, who has done an incredible job on the, as chair of the land use uh, committee, shepherding this through and working di diligently and collaboratively with stakeholders to preserve um, family housing opportunities uh, as a special use district. Um, as I think she said in committee yesterday, collaborative work uh, goes unthanked and unnoticed. And I know I was part of, one, I think one of my favorite statements you made is that, you know, you feel like you're always stuck doing the dishes, which resonated with me because I hate doing dishes. Um, but I do want to acknowledge your, your work and um, the work of uh, colleagues for all of this. So uh, I will be supporting the continuance. Professor Walton. Thank you, President Peskin. And I'm not sure if this question was asked in committee, uh, but can someone just tell me why we would eliminate developer fees on certain affordable housing projects, knowing that these fund parks, community programs, and other improvements? Is there anyone who could answer that question for me? Who are you asking? A anyone who has the answer to that question. I mean, I can look at the names of the sponsors on here. Uh, Mayor's office, um, Supervisor Angardio, um, Supervisor Dorsey. <coughs> Did you hear the question? Uh, why will we be eliminating developer fees on affordable housing projects when we know they fund parks programs and other community benefits. I can ask a question that's not to the motion. The motion was made. That, that's not how the rules go, Supervisor Melgar, but thank you. I think it's important that we do everything we can to be in compliance with the state HCD. Um, I worry that given some of the, um, they, this is an agency that has made clear um, that it's not messing around and a former colleague of mine who's now the state attorney general is taking very seriously his obligations under state law um, and has with other jurisdictions. This is something that I believe um, is, would, would make us compliant with state law. So I wanna make sure that we're doing that. That's why I'm supporting the restraint, um, Restraints legislation. Just, just through the chair, um, we build a lot of affordable housing in District 10, and we don't give up developer fees. So I, I'd be interested to know 
what are we trying to accomplish here? Because housing is still being built. Um, and so just giving anything to a developer makes no sense to me. But I'll follow up with you um, and sponsors. On the motion to continue a roll call, please. And that would be to December 5th. Correct. Supervisor Dorsey. Dorsey, aye. Supervisor Engardio. Engardio, aye. Supervisor Mandelman. Aye. Mandelman, aye. Supervisor Melgar. Melgar, aye. Supervisor Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Supervisor Preston. Preston, aye. Supervisor Ronan. Ronan, aye. Supervisor Safayi. Safayi, aye. Supervisor Stephanie. Stephanie, aye. Supervisor Walton. Walton, aye. And Supervisor Chan. Chan, aye. There are 11 ayes. Thank you, Madam Clerk. The item is continued until December 5th. Madam Clerk, I believe that is the only committee report that was forwarded to the full board. Is that correct? That's correct, Mr. President. All right. Why don't we go to roll call for introductions? First up to introduce new business is Supervisor Dorsey. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Colleagues, today, along with Supervisor Connie Chan, I am introducing a hearing request on the financial impacts of APEC on small businesses, cultural institutions, community organizations, residents, and workers within and immediately surrounding the security perimeter, uh, particularly in the Yerba Buena and Moscone area. Uh, a few weeks ago, Supervisor Chan passed a resolution, and I was uh, proud to be a co-sponsor of that, urging the mayor and city agencies to inform residents and vulnerable communities of security, transportation, and service impacts from APEC activities. Uh, to prioritize city funding towards mitigation of impacts on neighborhoods, small businesses, and vulnerable communities, and to protect people's rights uh, to freedom of speech and to uphold our city's sanctuary policies in light of um, you know, this there was some information that people might people's IDs might be check, checked. Um, after public comment and in my office's outreach, we heard from a number of small business owners who expressed concerns ranging from decreased foot traffic and revenues to employees not being able to get in and out of the security perimeter. Um, from residents, we heard many concerns about access to their caregivers, um, supportive services and daily needs, uh, to concerns not having identification like uh, on their immigration status. I want to express uh, some of my appreciation to organizations like Soma Pilipinas and the uh, Yerba Buena Community Benefit District, which have been tremendous partners in outreach. The other thing, too, I think it's, it bears uh, mentioning that I want to express gratitude to state and federal partners for making APEC a success. I, this is something that, you know, I think we don't have a lot of these. Every 75 years, we have a national special security event. Um, there was a lot of, I had a lot of worry about it, but I think it went uh, pretty well. So I want to thank Supervisor Chan for her work uh, on the earlier resolution. Uh, so thank uh, Salma Pilipinas, Director Raquel Radon Diaz and Scott Rowitz from uh, Yerba Buena CBD for their work on the front lines of this. Uh, these businesses and residents uh, deserve to be heard. I think that will give us a chance to, at the hearing to hear from them. Um, and we're giving them a forum to share their stories so city agencies can be best informed on how to support them. Uh, and I'm hoping it'll inform agencies and city partners what we might be able to do to mitigate hardshi hardships, if any. And the rest, I submit. Thank you, Supervisor Dorsey. Supervisor Engardio. Submit, thank you. Supervisor Mandelman. Submit. Oh, thank you, Mr. Chair. Supervisor Melgar. Um, thank you, Madam Clerk. Uh, colleagues, today I'm introducing legislation to allow tenants living in substandard housing to have a right of action against landlords who refuse to cure life and safety issues. 
it will enhance damages when a child or senior are harmed by their living conditions. It will run parallel uh, and does not supersede action by DBI or the city attorney. Uh, I know that we all have heard fam uh, stories about families. We heard them today from Martha Ryan. Um, living in unsafe and unsustainable conditions because the landlords won't maintain essential conditions in their properties. Uh, Peer-reviewed research and common sense indicate that living in poor housing conditions can cause lifelong health and mental consequences, which can be especially devastating to developing children. Children living in homes with leaking roofs, lack of heat, rodents, unsafe environments show more emotional, behavioral, and health problems. School absences and the stress can have life, lifelong learning consequences and loss of earning potential for the parent and the child. A German study found an increase of 20% in doctor visits for age groups over 64 living in poor conditions, as well as an increase in early deaths for seniors. Because low-income families often lack the ability to move, um, and we have a very expensive city, they quietly suffer, suck in terrible conditions because they feel they have no ability to change their circumstances. We have the opportunity to change this and empower tenants to fight for their right to livable housing. Today, more than 20 states allow tenants to sue their landlords directly. Currently in California, San Jose is leading the charge on tenants' right of action, and I hope San Francisco will also follow suit. Colleagues, I look forward to your support to create enhanced protections for families and the rest I submit. Thank you, Supervisor Milgar. Supervisor Peskin. Thank you, Madam Clerk, colleagues, on behalf of my Chief of Staff, Sonny Angulo, for her beloved grandfather, Marcelino Marshall Espinoza, who passed away peacefully two weeks ago uh, at the age of 98 in Stockton. I would like to adjourn today's board meeting. He passed away 10 years to the month after his beloved wife, Amparo and Cruz Espinoza, also passed. He was born the seventh of 14 children in Kingsbury, California on April 11, 1925 to Martina and Esteban Espinoza after they crossed over from their home in Mexico in search of a better life here. Marcelino began working in the fields to support his family at the young age of six, bouncing around to many different grammar schools, often those set up to serve the families of field workers. Despite his hard childhood growing up in poverty and later gangs, he managed to retain a fierce sense of pride and resiliency. His grandfather remembers a story of how many of the field workers' children went to school barefoot, so the school would collect donated shoes and se separate them into a pile for girls and for one for boys. They would unleash the children on the piles, and Marcelino would run to scrounge for the best-looking shoes, even though they were two sizes too big. He would rather have shoes that didn't fit than shoes that looked shabby. He was very popular in high school, known for his musical and artistic talents. He was elected senior class president, but left high school to work full time to support his family and did not complete his high school degree. He learned to play the guitar from his cousin Ernesto, taught himself how to play the ukulele, harmonica, and piano, and was always hungry to learn new skills and express himself. He was a talented artist and did not lack, and, uh, did not lack for art supplies, uh, repurposing scraps of wood, recycled newsprint, and even trash as a palette for doodles and paintings. 
At the start of the U.S. involvement in World War II, Marshall worked as a civilian aircraft mechanic repairing planes damaged in combat. Upon being drafted, he served in the U.S. Army 1st Cavalry Division, 7th Cavalry Regiment, and ultimately participated in the post-war occupation of Japan as a radio operator. Upon returning, returning to Stockton, he met the love of his wife, life and crews at a town dance, and they later married on December 30, 1954. He gave us other love, his Indian motorcycle, when Anne became pregnant with, he gave up uh, his other love, uh, his Indian motorcycle, when Anne became pregnant with their first daughter. At his wife's encouragement, Marshall, as his friends called him, attended Stanislaus State University at night while working full-time in Stockton area canneries and eventually received his sociology degree in 1973. He joined the State of California Department of Corrections initially as a youth counselor to focus on juvenile at-risk intervention and eventually retired as a juvenile parole officer after 25 years of service. He, dis he distinguished himself working with young men in the California criminal justice and foster care systems, as well as those ex exiting street violence and gangs. He helped transform countless lives by passing on his own life's lessons to youth in need of a positive role model, particularly those struggling to escape from gangs. Marshall's impact and contributions to the community were recognized with countless honors, including serving as the Grand Marshal for the Stockton uh, Cinco de Mayo Parade and culminating in his induction into the Mexican-American Hall of Fame in Stockton in 1999. Marshall will be remembered as a favorite of his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren. A consummate kid at heart, he was happiest teaching his, great gr his grandchildren blackjack and poker, taking them to the local dump to search for treasures, playing them mariachi ballads, ballads on his guitar, or telling them tall tales and jokes inside the playhouse he built. On behalf of the Board of Supervisors, I'd like to extend my sincere condolences to his surviving two daughters, five grandchildren, including Sonny Angulo, five great-grandchildren, and a beloved sister-in-law, as well as numerous Espinosa cousins, nieces, nephews, and godchildren. The rest I submit. Thank you, Mr. President. Supervisor Preston, submit. Thank you. Supervisor Ronan, submit. Thank you. Supervisor Safaye. Thank you, uh, colleagues. Today I'm introducing legislation uh, to restore and expand the Homeward Bound program as a permanent program. Uh, since Mayor Gavin Newsom launched the program in 2005, Homeward Bound has helped over 11,000 people off the streets of San Francisco and reconnected family uh, with loved ones at a fraction of the cost of other homeless intervention programs. Um, from 2006 to 2019, on average, over 800 people a year utilized uh, the program when it was run by the S Human Services Agency. In 2019, the mayor's office uh, buried this program um, deep in the bureaucracy and obscured who was responsible for it and for running it. Because of the administration's mismanagement of the program, it's no wonder fewer and fewer homeless people and individuals uh, access uh, this service and remain stuck on our streets. Uh, so since then, only a fraction of that number use the program to reconnect with family. Uh, yes, this is also uh, has been influenced by the pandemic, um, and it's the impact of the fentanyl crisis on our homeless population, but that's absolutely not the whole story. It wasn't until the examiner um, and the Chronicle wrote stories about the underutilization of the program that this administration did something uh, to change Homeward Bound. 
And what they did, which is restore HSA's role in the program, did not go far enough and really back to the future of what was successful in the program policy making since HSA originally ran the program and did it successfully. This legislation is about providing exits from the street, but it's also exits from our permanent supportive housing system, uh, something the city does not focus on enough. So I want to ch charge Homeward Bound to a standalone program, make it clear who's in charge, and expand access to more people, uh, including those residents in our permanent supportive housing, so they can reunite uh, with their family and loved ones. And we can continue to work on it not just being uh, what, as it has in the past, a, a one-way ticket uh, back to loved ones um, that, of course, individuals uh, would be checked on on day 30, on day 60, on day 90 to ensure that they're still supported. Uh, but this program has expanded to be about transportation and other services they might need to relocate back to the communities from which they came. And with that, colleagues, the rest I submit. Thank you, Supervisor Safai. Supervisor Stephanie, submit. Thank you, Supervisor Walton. We'll circle back. And Supervisor Chan, submit. Thank you, Mr. President. Uh, Supervisor Walton, submit. submit. Thank you, Mr. President. Let's go to general public comment. All right. Those of you who are here in the chamber, please come uh, to the right uh, to your right side, and let's hear from our first speaker, please. Welcome. I will mostly just invite you today to uh, watch again what I said on February the 28th of this year. It's precisely nine months ago. So I don't know what happened to the baby yet. It's still, it's still there going. But after you do that, just guys, please understand you are not focusing on what's important here. The future is about fighting technology here. Technology especially in communication, is public enemy number one. We need to address this, be extremely aware of what it's trying to do to society all over the world. So San Francisco, you guys have to be extremely aware of that. We already said, stated nine months ago, that it is game over for these people who have been weaponizing technology. Technology cannot create beauty. That's not possible. Whereby we need beauty in order to be happy. Otherwise, it's not possible. It's extreme unintelligence here for big tech, for example, to keep working on artificial intelligence. This is a confession from big tech itself. You don't need artificial intelligence if you are intelligent enough. End of the story. Anyway, have a good day. Please, I invite you to watch the 28th of February, what I said at the time when I said I changed the course of whatever, San Francisco at least. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, I'm Chris Ward-Klein. I just wanted to talk about something that I've been talking about the last couple weeks, couple months. Last night, I attended the Christmas tree lighting in the Castro and the memorial for Moscone and Milk. It was really nice to see the city of San Francisco come together last night. When I was in college at Northeastern, we studied the Twinkie defense, and most people do not know it was not about Twinkies, sort of. 
The corporation ITT owned Wonder Bread and Twinkies, but also was the international telephone and telegraph company which started out in 1920. In 1977, it was worth $17 billion, owned Sheraton, Avis, and Continental Baking, which made Wonder Bread and Twinkies. With voice and phone technology, a person or a group could place you on digital surveillance, and that was what influenced Dan White. In 1978, there were major issues overseas and here within the United States. Right after Vietnam, we were in a culture war, a war amongst ourselves. When that happens and you are on digital surveillance, it can lead to increased intake of alcohol, increase the sugary food, anxiety, taking drugs, and when you're upset and angry, you're easily influenced under phone and voice technology. Just like today, there are issues abroad and domestically in wars rage. And not just here in San Francisco, people are getting placed on digital surveillance by people who do not have their best interests in mind, but for their own selfish, personal, political, and religious reasons. We need peace, unity, and community again. And I ask the Board of Supervisors to convene an emergency meeting to discuss the dangers of voice technology and phone technology and to Im immediately take off every citizen that is on digital surveillance within San Francisco. Point of note, metadata is not new. Um, the East Germany's Stasi used it, so it's not new. It's been around for decades, and I will make myself available to each of you for consulting on this matter. Thank you. Thank you, Christopher Klein, for your comments. Next speaker, please. Welcome. Hello. Um, my name is uh, Brenda Barros, and um, this is my counterpart. We both work at San Francisco General, so we heard you guys talking about the budget. And so that brought some things to mind for us. Like we heard about the deal for the land out at San Francisco General where they basically got it for nothing, UCSF. We hear about all these other things that, that is just giving away money to people, not charging uh, developers and things like that. It's like when you come to us and you start asking us to give up or you start asking us uh, that we should take a little less. Remember, we're going to be looking at all of that stuff. We're looking at every public service contract that is, you know, basically giving our work to somebody else to do rather than paying us to do it. Uh, the $39 million for overtime. Honestly, DPH workers, we're burnt out. You, uh, there are a lot of employees that refuse to do overtime anymore. So that is not the solution. They need to hire people so that we can really have people there to do what they need to do, not just pay some people overtime and everybody else continue to struggle and suffer. And the, and the clients are the ones that really suffer. Like I work in clinics. There, sometimes people have to wait months to get an appointment. That's, that's outrageous. It should not be that way. And that's because we don't have enough doctors and we don't have enough staff. Thank you, Brenda Barros, for your comments. Welcome, Mark. So the World Bank uh, has uh, been producing the PCR test specs at 2018. Think about that. This Everything we've been told is a lie, an absolute lie. There's very few people on the radio that are admitting what this thing's all about. There's a guy in KFAX on Monday at 5 p.m. for two hours, you know, and he's uh, exposing the whole COVID lie. But... There's so many lies out there. Now, 
One lie that we've all been taught is that the Earth is round and it's spinning. It's actually flat. Antarctica is not a continent. It's the ice wall around the rim of the flat Earth. There is essentially no South Pole. It's like a pizza, and the crust is Antarctica. God is very, very close. And we never went to the moon either. NASA's a bunch of liars. I have no respect for NASA at all. And the reason why I'm trying to convince you that the Earth is flat is maybe that'll make you read the Bible and believe on Jesus Christ because God is so close. They're in the North Pole. They have this big, it's a black stone that goes higher than the cloud and it's got a magnetic force. All of our compasses point north. They all point north. But it's round. It's actually round. We never went to the moon. The whole thing is a lie about landing on the moon. The whole, if you ask your... Uh, your pilot, the next time you fly, or just read the pilot's manual, it says it's flat. It's not moving. I was just cleaning the carpet of a guy not long ago and told him that, and he said, I know. I've been flying for 50 years. That's what it says. If we're spinning on a ball, you know, you think there might need to take a little bit of consideration at 500 miles an hour. If we're spinning at, what, 1,066 miles an hour? We're not. We're not. Now, Jesus is coming back. We don't know the day and the hour. We do know, if we care to know, that we are in uh, a Sabbath year right now. We're in a Sabbath year. And the only prophecy in the Bible, it's found in Daniel 9, that narrows down the year that Christ would die on the cross. It's all related to Sabbath years. It's still not too late to get saved. Repent, call upon Jesus sincerely, and he will save your soul. And boy, you'll light a fire in San Francisco. Great. Uh, can we hear from our next speaker, please? something to pass out. Arthur will be right there. Hello, my name is Leah McGeever. Um, I emailed most of you what this is with a lot more information. Um, so, I personally believe that there is a city hall and county employee who has been very transphobic, spreading transphobia, among other things, on social media, targeting trans activists as well. I'll just read, I, read what I have here. Um, if this man is indeed a city and county employee, the fact that he has targeted trans activists, specifically harassed myself and another trans activist for simply giving public comment and sharing our opinions with our government representatives, well, that would be unacceptable to me or any activist to be retaliated against by our city government for exercising our First Amendment. I went to the Human Rights Commission on someone's suggestion, um, but the Human Rights Commission lost my complaint and then told me they can't do anything. They suggest I call 311 for help or tr try the whistleblower's phone number. What would you do? Um, I've included some examples of the vile, trans vile transphobic things this person has shared. For the record, I also don't get paid to be here. In fact, it costs me money every time I print out these flyers at the library. It's also disheartening when people who I thought are more transgender accepting and their, than their colleagues, uh, certain colleagues on this board, um, when they don't say anything on the trans, on Transgender Day of Remembrance, how much more oppressed do you want trans kids and adults to be? You want to pass a resolution on eighth grade algebra? How about a resolution on getting trans kids restrooms so they can urinate and 
defecates and do other regular restroom humanly things at school. It is dehumanizing to not have restrooms at schools for these kids. Um, do you care? Thank you, Leah, for your comments. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon. Uh, the subject is rent control. Two phrases I'd like you to keep in your mind when voting on these issues. Demolition is death. And eviction is death. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Pasquariello, for your comments. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon, supervisors. My name is Jay Connor B. Ortega, and I'm co-president of Iconic D3. Something funny I heard earlier from Supervisor Preston was that the police are flooded downtown, but none are in the Tenderloin. Well, as the supervisor of the Tenderloin, he requested less police and more ambassadors. So deaths in a Tenderloin wouldn't have happened if the Tenderloin was actually cleaned up. But I say I agree with Preston in voting down Safai's poison amendment. Such a disappointment. However, before APEC, I went to break bread with Adam at Delhi Board in District 6, and what blows me away yeah. was watching him treat the homeless he engages with as if they were his family. Now, what angers me is that Adam is truly one of the best San Franciscans I have the honor and knowing, and like many residences and business owners, he and many others are having to do the job that this board should be doing, which is keeping the city safe, ensuring that businesses stay here in the city. But businesses around our city are constantly suffer from theft, broken windows, they're vandalized, and as a result from being beaten down by the lack of response to this chamber, they close forever. We all pay so much in taxes, both residents and tourists alike, only to have that money be constantly wasted on fruitless projects. And it's an insult that any elected official asks us for support when those same electeds push forward legislation that is killing our city. No longer are we afraid to hold those running for office accountable. Now, it's already too late for this board to get any sizable recovery achieved. So, for those who are running for office in 2024, like you, Supervisor Stephanie, we will be holding anyone who voted in favor of destroying San Francisco accountable. Thank you. Before the next speaker, I'll just, uh, Jay Connor. Here at the Board of Supervisors, when you're in a board meeting and an item is on the agenda, you cannot speak to it as you did regarding uh, the Charter Amendment. It's that committee that you would go and provide those comments. Okay. Okay. Ms. Chandler, welcome. Thank you so much. Shalom, everyone. My name is Salah Hakuya Chandler, fighter, abolitionist, and social justice fighter for my people, my nation, to make a better humanity. And it's very interesting. I enjoy myself today. Um, a lot of people say, why do you come? You know, what are you receiving from coming and sitting in these chambers? And myself say to them is that we can complain all day about what's not being done for our people. However, if you don't show up, how can you complain? And so I continued to come and stand. I was very, very inspired 
to uh, hear the story of Martha and also Joe, if, if I'm pronouncing the name correctly. And it's an inspiration to myself because there's so many issues that we can address. Myself as being cultural, representing the whole of the person. There's so many issues that I see that you are tackling. I want to speak on uh, one particular one, and that is mothers and families of murdered children. We presented to you uh, about two weeks ago a document of two homes in regards that I'm stating that I want to invite you, and we will be coming today and getting your schedule and information um, to see these homes. Uh, it's been brought to the attention of some here um, representing supervisors. It's been brought to their attention, but one of my particular partners, he pays $14,000 a month for the mortgage in Bayview, and there is no place in Bayview for the mothers and families to go and murder children. And we want you to be able to come to hear that Martha and Joseph, Joe, their homes and their businesses were also uh, purchased through by way of those who care. We would like you to come and just look at these two homes that we have. It's the only homes that we would be able to have for mothers and families of murdered children. Thank you so kindly. Thank you for your comments. Any other members of the public would like to address the board during general public comment? All right, Mr. President. Seeing no other speakers, public comment is closed. Madam Clerk, could you please read the adoption without committee reference calendar? Yes, items 38 and 39 uh, were introduced for adoption without committee reference. The unanimous vote is required for adoption of a resolution on first reading. Alternately or alternatively, one member may request a resolution on first reading to go to committee. Would any member like an item or item severed, seeing no names on the roster? We will take these items, same house, same call. The motions are approved. We have one item on the imperative agenda, yes. uh, which requires the board to approve two separate findings. Madam Clerk. I'll read the title. Resolution declaring November 28, 2023 as in-home Supportive Services Provider Day in the City and County of San Francisco, recognizing the compassionate services of IHSS providers to our most vulnerable, and urging the state and federal governments to advance quality care and good jobs. All right, uh, we're required to approve two separate findings bef um, before a unanimous adoption of the item itself. Supervisor Chan, would you like to make the Sunshine and Brown Act findings? So move. All right. Is there a second for that motion? Second by Supervisor Mandelman. We'll take that without objection, and we will pass the Sunshine and Brown Act findings. Same house, same call. Uh, Supervisor Chan, would you like to make any remarks on the item? Are there any members of the public who would like to comment on this imperative agenda item? Seeing none, public comment is closed. And we will take the item, same house, same call. The resolution is adopted. Madam Clerk, could you please read the in memoria? Today's meeting will be adjourned in memory of the following beloved individual on behalf of President Peskin for Mr. Marcelino Marshall V. Espinosa. We are adjourned.